Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie, it's you, Jamie. Don't be alarmed, but I think there's a guy following you. Maybe we should get that guard dog we talked about? Nothing too scary, maybe like a Bichon with an attitude? You know, Progressive's collision insurance covers injured dogs and cats at no extra cost, so... Wait, the guy stood up when I stood up. He's on the phone. He's looking right at me. Oh, wait, it's just my reflection. Don't tell anyone about this. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Pet coverage not available in New Hampshire and North Carolina. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Well, Zach, if we're going to start anywhere with you, we've got to start with KG. I mean, you grew up a Timberwolves fan, and if KG's going to step away, I'm sure you're feeling that legacy, that role as much as, as any fan out there. Yeah, I mean, he was the, like he was the guy for me growing up, right? Is I, I owned a Danielle Marshall jersey, and then luckily they actually got a real franchise player. Uh, when I was, you know, 11 years old or 13 years old or whenever that was. Um, and so from the start, it was kind of like, hey, Kevin Garnett uh, is this new pioneer. And then it evolved into like, whoa, Kevin Garnett is this kind of amazing two-way player. And then it was, this is the guy who caused the lockout in 1998. And then it's, um, you know, he's the MVP and he couldn't win and uh, and finally gets moved to Boston. Then he gets to win, and, and the first thing he does after screaming at Michelle Tavoya that everything that anything is possible is he's you know dedicating it to Minnesota and to Timberwolves fans, and and he never really had to do that. And to me, there are plenty of stories about how Kevin Garnett is maybe not a great person to be around, but to me, his loyalty and his passion for the game, those are the always the things that that resonate with me. And and he was. I always say this in a loving way. He was psychotically competitive. And, and those guys, it's kind of rare. Like, there are a lot of very competitive guys in the NBA, but there are very few psychotically competitive guys. And, and I think that's what it takes to be great. And, you know, I've, he may be the greatest versatile all-around defender in NBA history. He's easily one of the best defenders in all, you know, in NBA history, one of the, you know, premier big men in NBA history. Like, he's, he's really done it all, and, and I just think that his lasting legacy is something that we probably don't realize for, for quite a while. There's so much to it, and, the th- and there's so much to the three of them, Duncan, Kobe, and Garnett, and I think it's a fascinating debate even on who you like better, right? Like, if you're ranking them, where do you put them and how do you rank them? in their history um, is an interesting one to me because I actually think I probably put Kobe third, and then I think about what I just did. Like, that, right. Right? like, oh, like, how is that possible? But I think I do think that's probably where if I get pushed, I'm putting Duncan one, Garnett two, Kobe three. I mean, I don't you know list for the sake of list, but it's an interesting because they all have different aspects to them, and Duncan might be the one who's flawless. Yeah, and that's the thing. For for years, I thought, oh, if you give Kevin Garnett what Tim Duncan had in terms of situation, he'd have he'd have just as much success. And then as I got older and got you know more into um, the a- analytics of it all and understanding how team organizations and, and the whole building process works, I don't really believe that anymore. And, and I think that at the time, I was definitely discounting Tim Duncan. Or I still think Kevin Garnett ends up with a couple of rings and, and a very unbelievable career in San Antonio if, if the roles were switched for whatever in, in a vacuum. Uh, but I, Tim Duncan is flawless. Like, he really is. Like, you don't have a – there is no problem with him in his career other than, oh, he wasn't that flashy, unless you're a basketball nerd like me, and then you realize just how flashy 
his, you know, everything he did was from a basketball sense. And so, yeah, I think I, I definitely go Duncan one Garnett versus Kobe. The Garnett fan inside of me is screaming Kevin, Kevin, Kevin right now. But I, I think I may still go Kobe just for the sheer impact that he had on a nightly basis of, of being able to draw the attention, whether he used that attention, the defense to his team's benefit or his benefit is, is up for debate, but I still think I'd maybe go Kobe second. My argument my, uh, against that, it wasn't really where I intended to go, but the argument is I think Garnett was every bit as dominant defensively as Kobe was offensively. Now Kobe was pretty awesome defensively yeah, there for yeah. a while too, but so was Garnett. So we have a tendency, I think in the issue of flash to forget that, I mean, Garnett was, game-changingly defense, game-changer defensively for as much as anybody was offensively in the same era. So he's got to go up on that. He's got to go up on that pedestal uh, where he is. Where he's yeah, placed. and I mean, you look, you look at what Flip Saunders did with him. I mean, he just put him at the top of this sort of illegal zone. And, and when he did that, uh, Kevin, was, Kevin was dealing with point guards at the top of the zone and then doubling down and then rotating to the wing and then going back to point guards. Like, no one did that. And no one... In, no one in NBA history has really done that since. Uh, they've you know, kind of mimicked it with Sean Marion here and there, but not really. It's interesting. The other one I would just add on to this that I think is interesting, and I haven't, you know, there's, there's going to, when the Hall of Fame comes, there'll be a ton of pieces written. The thing I find interesting is that <clears throat> Duncan was the ultimate teammate. Both Kobe and Garnett might have been the worst teammate you could ever have for a period of their lives. It seems as though Garnett evolved out of that and Kobe never did. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the thing about Kobe too, right? Is like Kobe was Kobe never flinched in who he was, and that was great for a long time, and it was bad for certain spurts, and then it was awkward at the end. And I don't know, I don't know what you do with that. Like, I don't know, I don't know if that's just part of the story, or if at some point it really has to be a detriment to Kobe just never changing. But but it certainly was something with him where. Um, where it's almost that's the overwhelming lasting aspect of his career, where that's not really the case with other stars. Yeah, the fact that nobody ever wanted to play with Kobe, and, and I'm not trying to – I got all the – don't misunderstand this. I'm focusing on this somehow taking away all the incredible other aspects of Kobe. But I do think if, if you list the five biggest parts of Kobe's legacy, in that five is that nobody ever wanted to play with him. Right, I mean the right. I mean there there was the rare like I mean you need someone like Ron Artest, right? Who that was like the only guy who really wanted to play with Kobe, and I don't know, I don't know if that's a, a ringing endorsement at all. So Zach Harper did fabulous work this uh, summer. It's large reason why we ha- are having him on. We haven't been able to connect before. Uh, you you put out three pieces that I loved because I thought that they kind of to some extent, got to bigger picture topics uh, of the NBA this summer at CBS Sports. Uh, and I compliment you for finding a way to keep good topics going on what was actually an active offseason. But, I mean, it's not easy. And you actually, most of these kind of came out in August. Um, the, the first two were the list of the best starting fives in the NBA and then the list of the best benches in the NBA. So let, let me just go to the, the list concept first. Did anything surprise you? Did anybody, when you did the starters, and you suddenly looked at it and say, wow, I didn't realize that that five is that much better than I realized? I think I was, I was surprised at how high, because we, we did it as a team effort in terms of like ranking the teams together. Um, I was surprised at how high everybody was on the Timberwolves, in fact, is because I think that there's, there's something we get into trouble with. And Rick Adelman once said, 
shortly after he took over the Timberwolves job, that potential gets you fired if you're a coach. And I, and that's always stuck with me. And so with the Wolves, they have these three incredible young players and then some, some incredible role players that are pretty young too. But everyone looks at Wiggins, Towns, and Levine, and then they look at Tom Thibodeau coming in and they say, oh, well, well they're going to be really good this year. And to me, I see potential talent there, and I think there's some tangible talent, but the overall tangible talent is far to be realized. And so I was a little surprised at how high everybody was on the Timberwolves simply because I look at them as a team and yeah, a couple of years, just like everyone, that team's going to be a real problem in the NBA. But for now, you're still asking two 21-year-olds and a 20-year-old to fully grasp the concepts that Tom Thibodeau is going to throw out there on both ends of the floor. And I just don't know how quickly that gets realized. I'm going to take the other side of this argument with you, if I may. Not that it's an argument. I'm just making it, sure. I guess. Um, if we go list the best players in the NBA, okay, we have the top three, LeBron, Durant, Curry. We seem to have the next three, which is kind of Kawhi, Westbrook, CP3, and Harden, I guess. Yeah. Right? So we're kind of at seven right there. And then Blake probably deserves to need to be eight. I think Carl Anthony Towns is nine. I think Carl Anthony over Towns. Someone like, over someone like Paul George? Absolutely. Without, without, without I, I don't even, hate this take. I, without, I, I, without like, even I like a, this argument. I mean, like, I'm not even, like, I got to be honest. That I, I may be still wrong on Paul George. I, I have missed, I am probably, if everybody's on their island when they love somebody, like, I'm the last one to board Paul George Island. Like, I'm not, I do think, I'm not uh, all the way it, on it, Paul George Island. Like, it's interesting to me that, like, Paul George is characterized as this incredible superstar without a lot of wins that, behind it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting. So the year before he, uh, the year before he broke his leg, from January first through the end of the season, uh, he shot worse from the field than Ricky Rubio. Right. Thank by you. Like point, like, by like by like point three percentage points. And then after November of this past season, I think he was under forty percent. Well, from he, like December first on through the end of the year. Dece- the month of December, he shot thirty-seven percent with a thirty percent usage rate. He had an right. off, like, not great. Right? I mean, so, so no, I don't put – I mean, he got – as the year went on, I mean, he had a good April, and he, you know, he put up 23 points a game in March, doing it a little bit better than that. But, no, I, I'm not – so I'm not willing to go there, I guess, is the answer to your question. On Paul George, like, um, his effective field goal – league average – I have decided, by the way, that I am no longer discussing field goal percentage. Like, I right. am going – to only use effective field goal percentage. So uh, you will hear the following sentence out of my mouth probably 100 million times this year. The league average effective field goal percent is 50%. Okay? That's the way to think about it. It's 50%. Here's Paul George the last four years. 49, 49, 46, 49. Whew. Like, I'm not putting a That's guy in the top 10 in the NBA who's below league average shooting in a shooter's league. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think also in comparing him to Towns, so the thing that, that brings everyone forward is like, oh, Paul George is this elite defender, which I believe to be mostly true. Um, but with Towns, do you value the wing defense or do you value interior defense more, right? Like with a, with a wing, unless you're Draymond Green, you're a freak, like you can't really do both. Some big men like Marcus Gasol, over the past few years, like can do both in terms of defend the perimeter and defend inside. And I think Towns will be one of those guys that can do the same thing. 
So if you have that versatility versus just this lockdown wing defender, you would take the versatility, right? I think what you're discussing kind of right there is the next wave of all of this. So we've had Draymond Green and the Paul Millsaps of the world who've been these undersized fours who are able to switch out and play all positions. I think the next stage of this is the full-size guys doing it, and I think Carl Anthony Towns is going to be in the middle of that. I think he's 7 feet tall, 244, and Thibodeau doesn't like to switch a great deal, but he's going to use him. He can do anything he wants with him. And to me, He really really does do everything, too. I mean, Towns does do everything. I I think there are still some mistakes he's going to make here and there because of the inexperience. Uh, I think he's more likely to pick up Thibodeau's system a lot quicker than, than Wiggins or Levine. I think they will pick it up, but I think those guys take some time. But with Towns, I mean, really the only thing I can nitpick is his outlet passing, which isn't great. Uh, but even when I brought that up to him back in March or April, as I was halfway through that sentence, he cut me off. He's like, I know these guys are so much faster at this level. Uh, you know, I've been working on that lately. So he recognizes every flaw in his game. And, and because of that, I think that he's, he probably will make the, the discussion of him versus Paul George or some of these other guys look silly in about a month. When he came, when he came out for the draft, uh, my comment I, I made was that he's going to win MVPs when we get bored voting for Anthony Davis. And I was wrong. We're gonna, Anthony Davis is going to win MVPs when we get bored voting for Carl Anthony Towns. I think you're right. I mean, he re- like I'm trying not to I'm trying not to let any potential fandom or bias or anything seep in, but like he really is the perfect franchise player on and off the court. A hundred percent agreed. So it's at, so to me, your Minnesota ranking in starters, which is where this conversation start, is not too high, right? Because. Does, it, does their youth not worry you, though, in terms of, but, like, I, I mean, but they have I a think top the talent 10, is there. They have a top ten player in the NBA. Yeah, that's true. Right. I mean, here's what's really the other part of this thing that's going on in the league. Okay, so it's not universal who the top ten players are in the league. But if you just kind of go with it, Golden State has two of them in Durant and Curry. The yeah. Clippers have two of them. The Cavs have one. OKC has one. Houston has one. Um, the Spurs have one. And then if I put Carl Anthony Towns in there, I think that gets us to 10. Right? So there's only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight teams, nine, eight teams that have one of these guys since, th- since there's a bunch of teams that have multiple. And if you put Draymond in there, it's probably some people think is the 10th with his offensive deep, then the Warriors have three. Yeah. I mean that's yeah. I mean it's not it's not it's not wrong. It's not a wrong way to look at it. It's just it, for me, it's can everyone else catch up? Right. I think Wiggins is over scrutinized and unfairly compared to Demar Derozan. I hate that comparison. Um, I'm still trying to figure out if the last two and a half months of Zach Levine, where he shot like 43 percent from the from three point range and, and was just you know this otherworldly offensive player. I'm trying to figure out if that was him taking a leap forward or if it was him playing on a team that no one no one considered a real threat for the last two and a half months of the season, so they just kind of let those guys do whatever they wanted. Hard to tell. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think you got to be very careful about final 30 games of NBA seasons leading you to believe something's right. going to happen in the next year for, for all sorts of reasons. Particularly, one, you're never playing full rosters. Two, uh, a lot of times it's guys who didn't play earlier in the year, so they have a bounce while everybody else is exhausted. I think that's... I, I think the Jazz have to look at Rudy Gobert's 27-game stretch two years ago and put it really to the side and say 
you know what? That could have been a center while everybody else's legs are dead tired that had a bounce that's very special, but it's not replicable for an 82-game stretch. And try to figure out what is replicable for an 82-game stretch uh, before you do it. So, uh, But nonetheless, back to where we are, I, I think if you have a top-ten guy, you got one. Of, uh, this, is, this is where I thought your piece was so interesting, so go big picture on your piece. Because the, tr- the, the three guys seem to be better than everybody else, uh, in Curry, Durant, and LeBron. Uh, and the separation, I think, when you particularly somewhere in this process, when you get to like 11 to 30, I think the separation's very thin. It makes me wonder whether bench play and depth becomes more important this year than ever before, which is what I really liked about the way you broke up. Here are the starters. Now here's the bench, and in a league that, frankly, I think I'm really all over the place here. Sorry, Zach. I think the competitive balance. So the competitive balance that that Adam Silver is trying to get is actually happening, other than the fact that the superstars are all in one place, right? But we're going to have the Eastern Conference is going to have seeds four through twelve are going to be separated at the end of this thing by five or seven wins, right? I think. Right. The West is probably going to have four through eleven in that similar circumstance, which suddenly I wonder if depth and bench play becomes more important than ever before this year. It has to be. I mean, it, it's everything is about managing the season now, right? Like before it was, oh, Doc Rivers manages the season. Oh, Greg Popovich manages the season. And now you look at teams, you know, 1 through 20 in the NBA, they all have to manage the season. It's why if you're Dallas, you feel really good about their starting lineup and what Rick Carlisle can do with it, and you feel really worried about their bench because you don't know if Seth Curry is actually a sixth man or whoever they throw out there. I mean, you there's – there are a lot of questions with that, and that depth probably means the difference between you know making the playoffs and not making the playoffs now that both conferences are, are relatively competitive within themselves. It, and I think that if, if you're looking at the depth, like you have to – maybe you even have to have four guys. Like in the past, you can kind of – in the in the playoffs, you would shorten it to like an eight, maybe a nine-man rotation, right? And I guess some, some teams would even go like seven because if they didn't have the depth. Now I, you need at least nine guys that you can play on a nightly basis – just to get through the regular season with all the rest and everything. And that's with them taking out as many back-to-backs and four games and five nights as they, as they possibly could. And, and so I'm with you. Like, I think the depth matters more than anything. And, and you, stop, you stop wondering, hey, is this our best starting lineup? You start wondering at what point, you know, how long can we play our best five? Because that's, not, that's no longer your best starting lineup. Well, and that's where I, I think Memphis is the one. Memphis is the one that I just look at. I, I, I like. Conley, Allen, Chandler Parsons, Zach Randolph, Marcus Ole. That looks great, except for two of those guys are, I think, plus 35 and you're trying to play defense, which is interesting to me. And then their bench is a disaster. Yeah, they need what? they need what? Like, they need Wade Baldwin to be able to play right away. They need Vince Carter to not be as old as he is. Uh, I don't know Jermichael, what you do with Jamichael Green. Right? Like, that had to, that had, they had to rank near the bottom. For you, yeah, they were. I think I think they were twenty uh, first as like a composite score, and I and I think that was just screwed up by one person having them pretty high. What would you if we if you we buy the premise? We being me, um, if we <laughs> and the mouse in my pocket buy the premise that benches this year will be more important than ever before, what were the teams in this kind of quagmire of West and East that I'm talking about that either peaked out or bottomed out when you ranked your 30 best benches? 
Well, I mean, Charlotte, which is a fantastic, you know, Eastern Conference kind of not contender, but in that second tier of, of teams in the East, um, they were they were at the bottom. I mean, they were they were 28th in in our in our rankings because me, I've never like I think it's great that he won a lot of people fantasy leagues, you know, years ago. But I'm not a Ramon Sessions guy. Like, I just don't – I don't think he's very good. I think he's a terrible backup point guard. Uh, he doesn't play any defense. He's not really a shooter. He gets to the free throw line, but he's not that good of a free throw shooter. Uh, you know, so I'm not huge on him. I don't think Jeremy Lamb's any good. Uh, I think Frank Kaminsky's probably their best bench player or Marco Bellinelli, and think about how bad that is. Like, that's – you know, Kaminsky could be fine. He's a – you know, he's a second-year player now. Um, like, he's a fine big – you know, backup big man, but he can't be your best bench player uh, if you're going to be competitive within the conference. So that means, you know, Kid Gilchrist can't get hurt this year. Uh, Batum can't get hurt this year. If Kemba Walker goes down for any stretch, this team, this team's really in trouble. So I think that's the team in the East that is hanging the most by, by this kind of thin thread of, of, of bench play. It's interesting. I, I would, and I don't think Kaminsky's good. The other one is, you know, and I don't know if we thought they were a playoff team, but the Middleton injury to Milwaukee, who already was thin, is just brutal. Oh, it's, uh, it's awful. I mean, they already like I, if you have to play Greg Monroe and Michael Carter Williams at the same time, you're already in trouble. And, and they don't really have like they have weird depth. But you know you have to start relying on Malcolm Brogdon to come in right away as a second round pick and be and be okay. I mean the fact that they traded for Michael Beasley as their stopgap is is like that doesn't really seem like the people in that organization something they would do other than John Hammond. Uh, but I guess all they had to give up was Tyler Ennis for him, so it's not that big of a deal. But they that's a team that. They went from being someone I actually felt pretty good about, despite the the depth issues, to a team now that I'm just wondering: Are, you, are they a top five pick in the draft? Are they top six pick? And how and how do they screw that up? There were two things I thought, or three things that I want to point out that I thought were interesting in your listings. One was the the Oklahoma City Houston aspect of things. Um, they both have superstars, and you both had their benches above average. Which, uh, if Houston got rid of Corey Brewer, I might agree. Uh, because I actually think Houston's going to be really good this year. Other than Corey Brewer, every single one of their guys uses possessions above the league average, and I'm a huge believer in that. Uh, and then Oklahoma City is interesting. It's almost like we need to take a second and just pull back and reevaluate Oklahoma City just from top to bottom. But but both those benches above league average, is that a bigger statement about how bad some benches are, or are both those actually pretty good? I think a little bit of both. I, I think that the individual components for Houston, like for me – Eric Gordon put, puts a big push into into making that team. Like if you can have a guy like Eric Gordon coming off your bench, I think that's just a huge boost to your to your bench because you need those. I, I'm a very you know me as a lover of gunners. Like I'm a, I'm very much a believer in having that offensive weapon off the bench and, and someone who shoots like Gordon does, especially with the way he's going to play in Mike D'Antoni's system as long as he's healthy. Uh, I'm I just I'm very into that idea. Uh, they need to re-sign Moti Yunus, whether they seem to believe it or not. Like, I think that would definitely help the bench. Uh, Nene, I don't really know what to do with Nene. I feel like whenever I buy in, he, uh, he falls apart. Whenever I think he's going to fall apart, he, he seems to do well. So I'm, I'm done guessing on Nene, but I think the, I think as a whole, as a unit, the bench will be good together. And, and I kind of feel the same way or the opposite, but still positive about OKC. I'm not totally sure how their bench is going to work together, but I like those components um, individually. Like I think Cameron Payne going into the second year, as long as his foot ankle is okay, uh, I think he'll be a really nice backup point guard. I think I don't think Singler's as bad as he was last year. I like Abrinas coming from from Spain. Uh, Collison always does well. Ennis Cantor is kind of that 
really nice backup big man uh, in terms of like he'll get you points, he'll get you rebounds. You don't want to throw him out there too long defensively, but you need those guys who can kind of grab a focus and have a skill that they can exploit. Um, so I think individually they're they're good. If you stagger those throughout the lineup and you throwing you know Irsan Ilyasova in with a couple of these guys and you're throwing Victor Oladipo in with the second unit a little bit and, and Andre Roberson defensively, like I think you can get by with what they have. So the interesting one on this whole bench conversation to wrap it up was. Uh, in the middle, as Utah came out as one, and Golden State, who most people are saying, well, their weakness is their bench, you had as two. Yeah, I, a lot of people believe in Andre Iguodala. I mean, I, I had them in the lowest ranks. I think I had them fourth, and they ended up second within our within our rankings. But Livingston and Iguodala make a huge splash. David West is kind of the, the key to this, right? It's like he, he wasn't very good for the Spurs last year. Like He was kind of a liability at times. Can he can he kind of rebound and, and and at least be solid defensively? We know the passing will be good with him. He can hit a jumper, um, so I think offensively he'll be fine. But if if he's able to play any kind of positional defense, I think that that lets the bench take off. But it, but if not, then I think everyone's just buying into like Iguodala and Livingston are enough for them, and, and kind of ignoring that Verjao really should not be playing. <laughs> and the Jazz is the num who had arguably the worst one of the worst benches in the league last year. The additions of Joe Johnson, Boris Diaw, pushing Dante to the bench with George Hill, you believe is the number one bench in the NBA? Yeah, I mean they're they're that they're that deep, right? And and even you can even go a little bit deeper. Like if they need a rim protector coming off the bench uh, for whatever matchup, like Jeff Withy's there. Like they they really do. As long as Dante Exum is able to bounce back and catch up to the speed of the game within a couple of months, which I, which is probably even too far of a projection for for making that work. What you know, there's really not a weakness. Like they can shoot off the bench, they can tack. I would actually like to see Quinn let this bench push a little bit with Boris Diaw and Trey Lyles in the lineup. I think maybe that gets them to, into a little trouble defensively by speeding up the game. But I think that with guys like Exum and Burks and and Trey Lyles and Boris Diaw coming in, coming off the off the bench, like I really think that those guys can push the pace a little bit, be a change of pace unit, and and cause a lot of problems for for the opposition. My only uh, I agree. I mean, I, and I, actually, I, you know you like a team when you like their 11, 12, and 13 guys, right? So, like, right, exactly. Sh- Shelvin Mack, Joe Ingles, Jeff Withy, uh, Raul Neto are all viable rotation players in the NBA. And when you have that as your non-rotation players, it means you're really going to be able to handle injury well, which is something they didn't do in the past. The only question I have is, uh, and it's interesting, you, you want these teams to be so versatile. And, and that is certainly the key in the NBA. I mean, that is... I think small ball is a ridiculous phrase. It's skill ball, and so it's versatility, and it's lineup matching. And Quinn said it well in our previous Lockdown NBA edition where he said it's really def- being able to defend at every position. So if you know, Diaw can be defended a five with skill, then you can play him as a five. But I, I worry on some of these teams of whether they have an identity. You know, I look at the Wizards last year who just su- suddenly became identityless. Are the Jazz still a defensive team with Gobert and Favors? Are they an offensive team? I mean, it's nice to be able to do everything, but I sometimes wonder, shouldn't you do, do, who are you? And I think there's going to be a little bit of a tug, you know, tug of war inside of who they are because they're able to do a lot of things. Yeah, and I, I, I've always kind of wondered, like, can you have – can you have like multiple identities within the team? Can you have that bench mob mentality like the, the Kings when they were good had where they like it was very flashy within the starting unit and everything in the first seven, but they had they had some of those kind of gritty guys off the bench that you can kind of make things ugly with and they they 
seem to do a pretty good job mixing those identities. Can you have that with the slowdown, you know, offensive rebounding, defensive interior kind of system with the starters and then bring the bench in? And obviously you're not doing line changes like in hockey, but if once you stagger in the, the entire bench, you know, can you have a situation where those guys are maybe a little looser and maybe a little more, um, you know, quick to, to push the tempo? And, and can you ha- can you marry those two ideas and have them work? I guess the problem is, is when you have the staggered portion of the bench coming in for some of the starters, but not all the starters, at what point, what is your identity there? But I, I do think it's workable to where you can have the two. The other one that gets interesting here, by the way, is that, Frankly, if you looked at all the trends in the NBA the last two or three years, offense wins. The whole idea of the defense wins, offense wins. And three-point shooting wins. So you, it might be one issue of whether you have an identity or what the league wants you to have your identity be. And I think that's, that I think gets very interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting in the sense that um, you do need to have that skill set that you, that you kind of – back on. I think this Jazz team can be an excellent three-point shooter. I don't think people realize how good of a three-point shooter George Hill is. So adding him to Hood and to Hayward um, and some of these guys off the bench, I think just creates a real problem for the other team. But this isn't a a fast-paced, like, get up and down the floor, move the ball around within the transition opportunities to get those quick threes. This is kind of of the opposite. So how do you you make those both work for you? Uh, Exactly. I mean, and what is going to be the range of three-point shooting this year, right? So we've gone, you know, we kind of keep looking every year. I'm pulling it up right now. Last year, the league average, I think, uh, give me one second. I think the league average off the top of my head was 28% of shots were threes. I think we're going to 31 this year. Because when you start to look yeah, at it, it, it should be close to a third, yeah. Right, and when you start – and what's moreover is you start to look at, well, the teams that shot a lot of threes, how'd they do? Oh, they all won. <laughs> That's – so if you go look at the teams that shot over 30% from three last year, thirty not 30% percentage-wise, but 30% of their shots were threes last year, there were ten of them. Eight of the ten made the playoffs. The 76ers were one of them that did not. The top eight teams in the NBA taking the most amount of threes all made the playoffs. Two of the top three made the finals. Right? I mean, at some point, yeah, I mean, that's, you just that, you got to shoot it. And so, you know, you look at a team like the Jazz you mentioned, who could be a great three-point shooting team. They were pretty. They shot 29% of their threes without good three-point shooters. Where do they go? Like, are they suddenly at 34 35% top five in the league? Or what is top? I don't even know what top five in the league is going to be this year. Yeah, I mean, it, you would think it should be. Because the, Steve Clifford said before last season that they were transitioning to that, specifically for what you said. In the 2014-15 season, you had uh, the top five teams in three-point shooting, I think, were the Hawks, the Spurs, or it was the, it was the Hawks, the War- no, it was the Hawks, the Warriors, the stall, Cavs, stall, stall, for me um, for, stall for me for another. The quick Rockets second, and the it. Clippers. If you give me one second, I'll and have and it. those and four of those teams made the conference finals. So Steve Clifford looked at that and said, "Hey, we should be shooting threes. And the Hornets transitioned perfectly into that. And I think that that's kind of the model for a lot of teams is not just take a bunch of threes like the Houston Rockets did necessarily just to take them, but find find those quality shots within the corners, within the top of the key, all of those situations. Find those quality shots and make them a higher volume in the process, find that balance. 
here to back up what you just said, it was Rockets, Cavaliers, Clippers, Hawks, Sixers, Blazers, Warriors, Raptors, Mavericks. I mean, they're all. That was two years ago. Two years ago, 26.7% of shots were threes. This last year was 28.1. So I would guess that we crossed 30% of shot attempts will be three-point shots this year for the first time in NBA history. I mean, you got to take them, right? Like, it's just math because the three is more than two. And, and if you can find those quality shots, like, it just sends the defense scrambling and you move them side to side. And I think that's where Quinn's offense can benefit from it by having a higher volume of threes is that they pass so much. They pass more than any team in the league. If you can make that side to side with, with the spreading of the floor of all these shooters, especially when you're staggering in the bench, I just don't know how you deal with that as a, as a defense who also has to keep these guys off the offensive boards. And it gets interesting to watch also, by the way, that uh, the coaching changes last year, Minnesota took the second fewest amount of threes of anyone in the league. Memphis took the fourth most amount of fewest amount of threes of anyone in the league. New York to the seventh fewest amount of threes of anyone in the league. So with those coaching changes, I would suspect that all those teams are really going to make a big jump in who they are as three-point shooting teams. Which brings... Yeah, and, and Tom Thibodeau specifically has talked about in his year off, he learned from all these different coaches just how important three-point shooting is. And so while, they have, while his Bulls teams weren't high three-point shooting teams necessarily unless Kyle Korver was in the game, uh, I think that they're really going to make a push to – to use Nemanja Bjelica and Carl Anthony Towns, Zach Levine, and all these guys, Shabazz Muhammad, like all these guys who people feel are better three-point shooters than they've been allowed to be, I think they're going to get that opportunity to be a, a really good three-point shooting team. All right, let's get to that. That was the third piece that you did. We've kind of touched on it, but you did a really interesting thing about open looks and open three-point shooting in the league. What did you discover on that process? I thought that was really well done. What did you discover there? Uh, thank you. I, I mean, I discovered that there were some – some really bad three-point shooting teams last year who were actually pretty solid at it. Like the, the Toronto Raptors weren't a bad three-point shooting team, but I didn't expect them to be near, you know, near the top of the league in open three-point shooting because you think about DeMar DeRozan, you think about some of these guys who didn't really, don't really shoot threes or shoot them that well, but when they had open looks, this team was, was really good at it. Uh, the Boston Celtics, who were a horrible three-point shooting team, but they took a lot of threes, they were actually really solid, you know, I think top ten, when they, when they were taking open threes, and it's when you put a hand in their face that they would you know, kind of fall apart. So it makes me think that those teams that can hit the open threes maybe have a higher likelihood of finding more of those open looks going into the season and being able to maybe shoot a little bit better now that they're co- more comfortable when they get uh, more of a contest from the defense. So I think the Raptors and the Celtics were the two most surprising teams to me. If I'm a co- we, we all judge coaches all the time. But if, this, to me, I thought was a very interesting way to look at who is running offensive systems that are getting open threes? In other words, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the that's what like George Carl talked about before we started hating George Carl as a coach. Like George Carl would talk about, you know, you got to get to the paint, you got to get to the free throw line, you got to get to the corners for threes. Um, I was, I guess, I was surprised at how many open threes came from the wings, but I guess, I guess, when you really think about it, that makes sense because you're rotating off of these shooters. Uh, to go cover the corners, to go cover the paint, and the ball can only swing so many times before you have to take that open shot. Because I went and ran through the teams that had over 40% of their three-point shots were uh, open threes, if I understood how you did it correctly. Um, You had down on every team what they shot on threes, and then you had down what percentage of their shots were open threes. 
if I understood correctly, right. I think. And what I thought was really interesting about it is you saw the power of system and you saw the power of stars. So the Spurs are at 45% of their three attempts are open. Like, I think that's a system. These guys really know. They keep working it. They get it. New Orleans, 48% of their three-point attempts were open. Is that just the power of Anthony Davis? And it makes you wonder a little I think bit. So, and I, think, I think with uh, Alvin Gentry, we, we kind of wondered how um, – how they weren't as good. Like, obviously, the injuries affect the Pelicans last year, and so that kind of took them out of the playoff position early. But I, I think Alvin Gentry, who not a lot of people are, are a fan of, but, uh, you know, as a head coach, but I think a lot of people, like, wanted to criticize him for not transforming this offense. But they were still pretty good offensively. And, and somehow, Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon got a ton of open threes. And the thing that surprised me the most about them was Anderson and Gordon together were basically Curry and Thompson in terms of, of the effectiveness of the wide-open three-point shot. And so how those guys got so many looks, I think you do have to credit Alvin Gentry a little bit with, like, the system worked. They just didn't have any players to make it work. Hi, you've reached the High Fashion Hotline. Hi, my family's going to a tailgate, and I want our style to stand out from the crowd. Just go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's got all the latest fall styles. Plus, during Old Navy's colossal sale, you'll save up to 50% off store-wide. Did you say up to 50% off? I did, so don't sit on the sidelines. Old Navy has the perfect pants from 19 bucks, stylish dresses from 15 bucks, and comfy tees for the family from just 6 bucks. right now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. We're cheering for Old Navy. High Fashion, Old Navy. Valid 10 to 1010. Select styles only. It also makes you wonder whether or not Houston would be a team you think would get a lot of open threes because of James Harden, but it didn't show up that way, and it makes you wonder what happens to Anderson and Gordon this year in Houston. Now, a different system with D'Antoni, but it still makes you wonder. I mean, if they had that many open looks, I wonder what happens when they go somewhere else. Maybe they, maybe you don't get as many open looks in Houston. You would think Harden creates Well, I think that's the key with Houston is, is D'Antoni's system with James Harden how sticky is the ball with James Harden, right? Like, because James Harden's this incredible offensive weapon, but he's kind of a guy that dribbles the life out of the ball. So if you can't, if you can't get him to move the ball quickly, how effective is that system and how effective can those open shooters be? I think Harden will kind of buy in, especially after everything he took in terms of scrutiny last year. I think now that Dwight's gone and now that he has a coach that he can maybe believe in a little bit more, I think things will start moving back towards a positive direction. But if the ball sticks and he over-dribbles, I don't think that system works all that well. The other one, by the way, is the two others I want to point out when I did this and I, is somehow Atlanta has 58% of their three-point shots are open. Yeah, I mean, Mike Budenholzer's system is incredible, right? Like, it, whether he has the guys to hit the shots or not. Uh, and mainly their big problem last year was Kyle Korver, the first three months of the season, was reworking his shot because he was trying to figure out, like, how to shoot with his – this ankle rehab going on constantly. The second half of the season, he was ridiculous. But the first half of the season, he was pretty mediocre, especially by his standards. Um, so when he gets going and you have all those open looks, I think he's the guy that uh, Tom Haverstrow, you know, writes about gravity a lot in terms of shooters and guys who can kind of take that gravity within the defensive focus. When you're trying to cover Kyle Korver, well, then you allow Jeff Teague to be open. You allow Paul Millsap and Al Horford to be open. Al Horford took like over 200 wide open threes last year, uh, which should help Boston quite a bit if they can get those looks for him. Um, you leave Kent Bazemore open. You leave these guys the opportunity to come through on these open shots because they're just worried about Corver the entire time. I, I really found this interesting, particularly with player movement. Like I, This is some data that I would like to follow over a period of time now that we have it in player movement because I think – 
you know, it'd be interesting to see, you know, does Al Horford get as many open looks in Boston? If Al Horford suddenly this year in Boston is not hitting his threes and we're like, what's going on? That's the answer is that somehow they're not as, you know, he had an inordinate amount of open threes. Now, you point out that Jared Sullinger had a decent amount too, and he can't shoot. So that probably makes it better for, you know, Boston. That Sullinger, what do you have? Sullinger shooting about 30% on open threes last year. Well, Horford's going to be better than that. Yeah, but uh, you also have to wonder, well, are, is the defense allowing Jared Sullinger to shoot because they know he can't shoot? Will they allow Al Horford to have those open looks? And if they don't, how does Isaiah Thomas and Avery Bradley and maybe even Marcus Smart, like how do those guys take advantage of what should be extra space on the floor? Maybe we see an increase in, in scoring at the rim with them when Al Horford's on the floor because the defense is more worried about them, those guys, than they were with Jared Sollinger out there. And then there, there were the Lakers with 25% of their open. <laughs> yeah. Which is either a statement of Kobe I don't know how Byron, Byron Scott. Scott made it through the entire yeah. year. I mean, this is, it's really one of the most impressive – George Costanza, like, like I'm still in my office type of type of jobs. Like the being friends with Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant doesn't have a lot of friends, but being one of the few friends he has means you get paid millions of dollars to be an incompetent coach. Uh, right, a hundred percent. And I, you know, it might be the last Byron Scott reference ever on any NBA <laughs> podcast. Right there. I mean that that we might that might maybe we should wrap the show on the beauty that we never have to talk about Byron Scott's coaching ever again. Uh, I mean, he was a really accomplished coach when Jason Kidd was in his prime, That's the, and they were in the Eastern Conference. That's really it. Yeah, and then even then you begin to wonder maybe what could have could have been sometimes along the way. Well, I really appreciate yeah. your work this summer, Zach. I thought it was great. You can follow him at the great Twitter handle, Talk Hoops. And uh, thanks so much for the time, and this should be a fun little exciting season. I, I think we're all waiting for the next month to go by quickly, but it still will be of uh, interest to see how training camps, different roster moves, all the things that take place, um, and we'll see whether the whole kind of this whole idea of depth becomes more important than ever before. Absolutely. Let's just hope no major injuries in the first, you know, Five, six months of the season. Let's shoot for that. He's just going for the whole season. I love it. Zach Harper, you can follow him <laughs> at Talk Hoops. He also does some of that Eye on Basketball podcast thing that's quite good. You should catch that as well. Thanks very much for tuning in. This is Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.